Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. The scripture this morning is from Psalm 128, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Let's pray. God, this morning I'm so thankful for your scripture, your word that guides us to what you want from our lives, from our hearts, in order for us to have blessed families. Oh, how we want our families to be blessed by you. We need your help, your strength, your guidance. We thank you for this time. And I just pray it would be a real encouragement Blessing and challenge to all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, last week, Bentley did a wonderful job of teaching us about parenting from Ephesians 6 in our series. He reminded all of us as kids of any age that our parents start out as God's primary authority in our lives. And so we need to obey God by obeying our parents We as dads were especially also reminded not to provoke our children to anger. Their anger problem should be their fault. They don't need any help from us, dads. But I'm a dad, and sometimes it's hard to find the overlap between their bad attitude and my good lessons. You know what I mean? Sometimes it comes up when they're doing chores, like you should see on the screen here. Shovel, shovel, shovel. Why can't we get a snowblower? We must be the only family in the world that still shovels the driveway by hand. I'm freezing. It builds character. Keep at it. Pretty convenient how every time I build character, he saves a couple hundred dollars. (laughs) But it even comes up on vacations, doesn't it? Ta-da, we're here. Good old Itchy Island, home of the nuclear mosquitoes. Bug bites build character. Yeah, last year you said diarrhea builds character. (laughs) So think of what a fine young man you're growing up to be. If all this character doesn't kill me first. That reminds me, open the duffel bag and get out the spam. If the canoe isn't here in the morning, it means Hobbs and I struck out for home. So, was Calvin's dad innocent or was he provoking Calvin? I'll leave that decision to you, but the one thing that we can all agree on is that parenting is hard. In his book, Everyday Talk, John Younce says, parents looking primarily for enjoyment from such creatures are in for a major disappointment. Parenting is hard, and I am not the expert just because I'm standing up here. So I will not apologize for the fact that this sermon will have many more quotes from various books than I normally would include because I need help just like you do, because parenting doesn't come naturally to us, does it? Except for one thing, one part of parenting 
comes as naturally to us as a toddler saying no. And do you know what that is? It's fear. Fear manifests in very different ways, but fear is easy. It's easy from the moment you find out that you're going to have a baby, and it doesn't get any harder as your kids get older, does it? Will our baby be healthy? Are they advancing as quickly, physically and mentally, compared to the other kids? Are they advancing quickly enough? Speaking of other kids, are they adjusting socially? Do they have good friends? Do they have any friends? Will they get saved and follow the Lord? Or will they walk away from the faith? How will they do in school? Will their grades and test scores get them into the college or the job that they want? What about their character? Based on the way they're treating all of us, are they always going to be lazy and messy, argumentative and selfish? Are they happy? Do they feel loved or lonely? Will they give in to sexual immorality? Will they marry a great spouse or a terrible one? Will they struggle with homosexuality and sexual identity? If they do get married, will they get a, be able to get pregnant? And the cycle starts over again. No matter what your family history is, no matter what your circumstances are, I promise you this, you will never run out of things to fear. So an important question is this. How can my family be blessed by God despite unending dangers from the world, despite my child's sin and their shortcomings, and despite my own sin and failures? Well, Psalm 128, called the Family Song by author Wayne Mack, is God's refreshing and clear picture of a blessed family. Point number one in your outline, a dad who fears the Lord. We read in verses one and two, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Oh man, I really want God to describe my family like that, don't you? To God, a lot of the blessing of our family rests on what we fear, specifically our fear of the Lord. According to one Bible dictionary, there are well over a hundred references to the fear of God in the positive sense of faith and obedience. Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 and 13 is an apt summary of what is encompassed in the fear of God. It says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So does this mean that the fear of the Lord means to be perfect? No. But think of it this way. As parents, our actions and our words are going to reveal when we are not willing to obey God because we don't trust him and or love him. If your life is aimed away from God, it is hard to talk convincingly about God and direct your kids on the path devoted to living for God. But if your life is oriented toward God and your decisions, your time, money, and life consider his kingdom first, it is much easier to lead your kids along the way, isn't it? Listen to these quotes 
from William Farley from Gospel-Powered Parenting. Parents who joyfully pursue God are contagious. Joyful sacrifice for the gospel is contagious. A gospel that makes parents stable, sincere, joyful, loving, affectionate, and humble is contagious. Children will want a God that produces these qualities. Your children alone see what or who you really love and not what you merely pretend to love. The gospel is the good news that our children do not need perfect examples. They need humble examples. Quick to admit wrongdoing. The author admits, I was after their hearts. I think this is powerful. My mistakes, humbly and sincerely confessed, probably did more to win my children for Christ than all my meager virtues combined. Dad, let me talk to you for a few minutes. You may feel a heavy burden to be a great man. Is your career thriving with money and advancement pouring in? Are you great at five sports and super funny? Do you read two books a week and keep up with all the news and the blogs, podcasts? Do your kids worship the ground you walk on, seeing that you can do no wrong? After all, you have all the answers to things in the world and the Bible. You can fix the car, the house, the lawn, and the printer. God is not asking you to be that man. To live up to some imaginary standard that you've come up with. So throw off the baggage. Instead, God is asking you to be committed to him. That's what he cares about. The other important things will follow. If I was to ask your kids, what does your dad really love? What does he talk about and get excited about? What does he care the most about? What's important to him? What would they say? It's scary, but I went ahead and asked my, I felt it was only fair, to ask my three kids that question this week. And I had them write it down so they wouldn't influence each other. And I got somewhat different responses from them. But the, the main themes were family and music and talking about serious things or deep truths. Formula One, sports, Jesus, and video games with the kids also made at least one list. Dads, fear the Lord. And God says he will bless you. He will bless your wife and your children. Listen to this. Throughout Scripture, fathers are the parents, and their wives are assistants. The wife is a crucial assistant. Dad is the chief parent, the one accountable to God for his family. Mom is there to assist him. Western culture, this blows my mind, Western culture used to assume this arrangement. Before 1830, virtually every manual on parenting was addressed to fathers. Now it is assumed that fathers are assistant mothers. In a Swiss study, when the father was non-practicing and the mother attended church regularly, only 2% of their children became regular worshipers. If the father was a regular church attender, but the mother was non-practicing, extraordinarily, the percentage of children who became adult 
church attenders went up to 44%. Is that as shocking to you as it was to me? Guys, we can't fake fearing the Lord. But if we humbly pursue, prioritize, and value the Lord, we will be blessed. And so will our kids and our wives. Psalm 128.3 says, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Why did God pick a fruitful vine here? Well, this is so cool. Point number two in your outline, a mom who is fruitful. Wayne Mack explains, God could have used hundreds of similes to describe the woman in the family, but he chose to describe her as a vine. It symbolized luxuriousness, value, and prosperity. Jesus used the vine to describe himself because the vine symbolized life, refreshment, and ministry. Could our Lord have paid the wife and mother a higher compliment? Could he have impressed us with her important home responsibilities in any better way? Women, God underscores your strategic ministry by comparing you to a vine. Ladies, I want to read you some excerpts from an article by Melissa Kruger. You're special. Don't let anyone limit your potential. You're made for more. Your life is up to you. Exercise more. Eat better. Make time for yourself. Cheer others on. Give more. Do more. Try harder. Run faster. Change the world. Solve injustice. Start a nonprofit. Lead a Bible study. Read all the new books. Maybe write one. Read the classics. Make sure to vote. Wash your face. Live untamed. She adds, no wonder you haven't thought about what's for dinner. But whatever you do, make sure it's an all-organic, free-range, locally-sourced, nutritious meal. And then she adds, Can I borrow a moment of your time to give you and me permission to lead a quiet, ordinary life? End quote. Being the fruitful vine that God intends for you isn't all those things, ladies. So what does God want for your life? Proverbs 31 will free you from unfair burdens, but it will also call you to your blessed life in the fear of the Lord. And I can't say it any better than Wayne Mack. Listen to this. The secret of her fruitfulness is not her dynamic personality, her strong willpower, her physical beauty, her pleasant situation, her unusual resources, her good training, her natural gifts, or her exceptional husband, or children. Her admirable life stems from her vital and deep relationship with God. A careful reading of Proverbs 31 presses us to one conclusion. A God-fearing wife and mother is a family-oriented person. Psalm 128 says she is a fruitful vine within the house. Proverbs 31 emphasizes that this woman takes excellent care of her family, though clearly not restricted to the home. Verses 13, 14, 16, and 20, she is utterly devoted to her family as her number one ministry. Her family is not neglected while she does other important things. I just want to ask you, what do you picture when you picture in your mind this perfect Proverbs 31 woman? I mean, like, like what does her face look like? How is she dressed? How does she interact with the other people in the proverb? 
Well, Mac makes a wonderful observation, and I hope it's very encouraging. Some things in the passage suggest that this woman may not have been especially charming, radiant, or naturally beautiful. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, in verse 30. Nevertheless, she was beautiful in the most important sense, in her character and conduct. And that made her a powerful influence in her home, among God's people, and in her world. She was a fruitful vine. You'll never have enough time in the day to do everything. So invest in God-honoring activities. And when you do that, strength and dignity will be your clothing. You will laugh at the time to come. You will open your mouth with wisdom and the teaching, so good, the teaching of kindness will be on your tongue. What a beautiful thing. So cast off the expectations of the world that have stuck to you along the way. And your children will see that you trust and fear the Lord above all other things. And that will impact their hearts deeply and turn them into olive shoots around your table. Point number three in your outline, children thriving with love and discipline. The second half of verse three reads, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Okay, why this analogy? I had never woken up saying, boy, I really hope my kids are like olive shoots today. Well, Mac again has some rich insights for us. Psalm 128.3 states that our children are to be like olive plants, not branches. So don't try to bear fruit for your children. The olive tree must bear its own fruit. Teach them to accept that responsibility and don't be guilty of excessive pushing or shoving. Exude realistic optimism. Develop the hopeful and appropriate expectation that they will be productive. Your goal is to help your child grow up to be interdependently dependent on Christ and his word. You want them to be plants within a larger orchard. That's the interdependent part. Now you can imagine I really liked that line when I ran across it in the book, so let's hear it again. You want them to be plants within a larger orchard. Isn't that great? One author tells us that the olive tree was the most important tree in Palestine. In one passage of scripture, the olive tree is depicted as the king of trees. In other words, the psalmist was describing children in a way that emphasized how valuable and precious they were. Unfortunately, because parenting is so hard and requires us to die so much to ourselves, we can often feel like our children are actually weighing us down and keeping us from our best life, all those great activities we want to do and invest in. And because our children often act like drunk people, it's hard to treat them as valuable and precious all the time, isn't it? Well, this severely impairs our parenting. In all the books I've read on parenting, here is the section that most inspired me to lay hold of my privilege as a parent in the time that I have. And it works for grandparents, works for any of you who are interacting with kids. Are you ready for it? The destiny of our children will either be love that surpasses knowledge, joy inexpressible and full of glory, coupled with peace that passes understanding, or it will be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. There is no middle ground. Therefore, the Christian 
does not parent for this life only. The believing parent labors to prepare each child for the day of judgment. The stakes are inexpressibly high. Our one chance to influence that destiny lasts for only about 18 short years. We get one shot. There are no second chances. That means I only have between four and six years left with my children. How many years do you have left? How can we spend them wisely? Well, Jesus' example with children and other passages and even data from studies will show that there are two main routes to raising prolific, thriving, olive tree children. The first is to love them like our Heavenly Father loves us. And the second is to discipline them like our Heavenly Father disciplines us. My earliest memory that I have of these two key roots of parenting, which are intertwined, goes back to 2008. We had just one child, little baby Sophia at the time. And I heard of this parenting study in a POPs class. Uh, It was a study done by Reuben Hill way back in 1988. And learning about this study was deeply impactful to me as a new dad. I actually was able to find an article on the Focus of the Family on the family website uh, that had all of the details. So there are two axes, axes on the chart, and you should be able to see this. The horizontal axis measured how much discipline or control parents exercised in their relationship with their child. The vertical axis measured love. So you get a grid with four boxes. The upper left quadrant represents parents who are high in love but low in discipline, the permissive parent. These parents are generally fearful and are afraid of messing up and damaging their children's psyche, so they never set firm boundaries. The kids feel very loved and yet very unsure of themselves. The lower left quadrant belongs to the worst of all four combinations, the neglectful parent This kind of parent doesn't express much love and also doesn't really care enough to discipline. Their children tend to grow up with little or no lasting relationship with mom or dad. They're estranged because they feel forsaken. The authoritarian parenting style shows up in the lower right quadrant. This kind of parent doesn't express love and affection well, but is very high on discipline. Communication between parent and child takes the form of arguing and fighting especially when they're old enough to fight back. And interestingly, kids with authoritarian parents actually did worse than the permissive parent. So you don't have to choose, but if you did, love is more important. Finally, those who land in the upper right quadrant provide the best combination of love and discipline. This kind of parent is authoritative, not an overbearing authoritarian, but a compassionate yet firm authority. They have clear boundaries, but are also very loving. The result is a child high in self-esteem and equipped with good coping skills. So let me ask you, where do you tend to err? Maybe you aren't sure, or maybe you immediately know. Or maybe, like most of us, you think you're better than you really are in both categories. So let's go through each of these, and we'll start by looking at four ways to grow in showing godly love. 
Number one, love your child through eye contact. In How to Really Love Your Child, Dr. Campbell defines eye contact as looking directly into the eyes of another person. How comfortable or uncomfortable are you loving your child through eye contact? Dr. Campbell notes that often we only look into our kids' eyes when we are proud of them, something they've done. Or we develop the terrible habit of using eye contact primarily when we want to make a strong point to a child, especially a negative one. Is the only time that you tell your child, look at me, is the only time when you say, look at me when I'm talking to you. Our eye connection with our children connects our souls and it should be loving. So to love your child the way God loves you, kneel down on their level and look into their eyes often when you're talking together or just hanging and spending time together. Number two, love your child through physical contact. Dr. Campbell gives examples like hugging, kissing, a touch on the shoulder, a gently poke the ribs or tossle hair. And listen to this quote. Studies show that most parents touch their children only when necessity demands it, as when helping them dress, undress, or perhaps get into the car. Dr. James Dobson shares a 1928 um, example of something written by a Dr. J.B. Watson. Advice, I will say, that was followed by millions of parents at the time, less than 100 years ago. Here's what he, here's what he says. Watson advised parents... If they wanted the best results to show no affection for their offspring, he wrote, never hug and kiss them, never let them sit on your lap. If you must, kiss them once on the forehead when they say goodnight. Shake hands with them in the morning. Remember when you're tempted to pet your child that mother love is a dangerous instrument, an instrument which may inflict a never healing wound, a wound which may make infancy unhappy. Adolescence a nightmare, an instrument which may wreck your adult son or daughter's vocational future and their chances for marital happiness. Contrast that to Jesus in Mark 10, 13 through 16. In the middle of his busy ministry, surrounded by huge crowds, People's kids are being brought to him. Let me tell you, this is not Jesus responding to biological children of his own. These aren't his friends' kids. These are strange kids. He doesn't even know them. This is what it says. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. It chokes me up because certainly this is God's desire for how you should love your own children. Moms and dads, love your child through age-appropriate physical contact. Number three, love your child through focused attention. 
Dr. Campbell defines focused attention as giving a child full, undivided attention in such a way that the child feels without doubt completely loved. Now, eye contact and physical contact may require some practice, some effort from you, but there's no real sacrifice required of you. But when it comes to this focused attention, sometimes it takes a lot of time and sacrifice. So, what counts as focused attention, you may ask? And may I just say, doesn't that sound already a little bit like you're trying to get out of it? Dr. Campbell says that the goal is to make a child feel, I'm all alone with my mommy or daddy. I have him or her all to myself. At this moment, I'm the most important person in the world to my mother or father. Parent, you, I, we must be willing to put down our phone. Our favorite shows, our work, our exercise, our projects, and even your ministry to know and play with and listen to your kids. Enough to know their needs, their personalities, and their wild imaginations. David Oxford is credited with this quote that rings so true for me, even as an adult. Being listened is so close to being loved that most people cannot tell the difference. So just sit with them, talk to them, but more importantly, listen and reply to what they would like to talk about. Show them how much you love them through focused attention. All right, number four kind of acts as a bridge to our second topic because discipline often uh, includes conflict. Number four, love your child during conflict. This starts with the James 1.19 command, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Moms and dads, don't assume you have it all figured out and that you can perfectly interpret the signs when conflict breaks out. That often leads to highly judgmental actions. Per 1 Corinthians 13, instead, we, with love, should put on the best possible interpretation of our child's behavior. Until proven wrong, love assumes the best rather than the worst. Love doesn't go around looking for insults and offenses. Love is not defensive. Love doesn't take everything personally. Now, this is always important, but especially when we hear crying, outbursts of rage, completely uncontrolled anger from our kids. I am so much worse at this than my wife, Michelle. I tend to think all I need is the facts here, okay? It goes something like this. You hit your brother? Well, yes, but he was almost touching me. Now, for anyone uh, who's been almost touched for an extensive period of time, you know that being almost touched is way worse than being touched, actually. I think it would drive anyone to violence. And my experience as a kid and a father is that normally it's preceded by poking or maybe accidental dropping of pillows or other things uh, on the sibling. But I reply, well, is it ever okay to hit him? Well, no, but he was, what have I told you to do when he's treating you this way? That's right. If you want him in trouble instead of you, you come tell me first and then I start handing out the consequences. Well, I have to tell you, some, some of the most valuable conflict resolution in our house 
comes after the facts have been shared. When usually Michelle asks the child, is there anything else that you would like to say? Often the emotions then come pouring out of their hearts. We can best understand our child and what their heart is going through, through this conflict. So we need to love our kids during, during the conflict, at the height of emotion, which is very hard. This poem may help you with your words in the heat of conflict. They're very precious to me. As I watched them tear a building down, a gang of men in a busy town, with a ho-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and the sidewall fell. I asked the foreman, are these men skilled and the men you'd hire if you wanted to build? He gave a laugh and said, no, indeed, just common labor is all I need. It can easily wreck in a day or two what builders have taken years to do. And I thought to myself as I went my way, which of these roles have I tried to play? Am I a builder who works with care, measuring life by rule and square? Am I shaping my work to a well-made plan, patiently doing the best I can? Or am I a wrecker who walks to town, content with the labor of tearing down O oh Lord, let my life and my labors be that which will build for eternity. I can't spend any more time on communication and words, so I am absolutely thrilled that we'll have four nights together in June. Both of the books for the older groups focus a lot on the broken words that fill our homes and how to work on that. For those of you with grade schoolers, primarily everyday talk is an awesome book that will show you that you never know when the recording machine is running for your kids and that the words you use throughout normal, everyday life will be far more impactful than the words that you use when you're sitting down for your family devotions. For those of you with teens especially, I'm so jealous for you. I wish I could be in those discussions with you, but I'll be leading the everyday talk one. Uh, Your Family, God's Way is a book that talks about, here are a few kind of cool terms, word deficit, topic avoidance, overtalk, monopolizing, takeover, badgering, and how to overcome these and many other sinful patterns that every family falls into. For those of you with mostly younger kids, we'll be going through James Dobson's wonderful book, Dare to Discipline. So very briefly, let's spend our last few minutes looking at how we can give this other root to our children, to give them God's discipline. There's a huge clash between what God teaches about discipline and what the world teaches about discipline. In Gospel-Powered Parenting, William Farley notes that parents can substitute many things for the gospel. Contemporary books, such as The Ten Basic Principles of Good Parenting, Playful parenting, how to talk so kids will listen, and the price of privilege contain some useful information. But they speak from a non-Christian worldview. They assume radically different answers to life's big questions. Biblical discipline always expresses God's love. The Lord disciplines the one he loves 
and chastises every son whom he receives, Hebrews 12.6. In fact, the Bible so closely allies discipline with love that it suggests that those who refuse to discipline their children actually hate them. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him, Proverbs 13.24. So here are three questions to ask yourself about your discipline. And remember, when I use this word discipline, I'm not talking just about punishment. Sometimes that's the same in our mind. No, guidance and instruction is our primary form of discipline. We only use punishment as a last resort. I'll talk about that in a minute here. All right, question number one, tying back to the other root, is my discipline loving? First, make sure that your expectations are reasonable for your child. And then look at your attitude. Ask this vital question. Am I for my child in my attitudes and actions right now? Or am I against my child? Noting this attitude difference has radically changed my treatment of my own kids when I remember, which sadly is far less than it should be. Younts tells us, you must respond to sin in a way that honors God first, even when all your emotional responses are telling you to lash out or give up. Trusting God when you are sinned against is an act of holiness. Question number one, is my discipline loving? Question number two, what is the right kind of discipline for each situation and child? That's a big question. Multiple authors point out, though, thankfully, that there are multiple levels, escalating levels of discipline. Now, there should never be escalating levels of yelling at your kids or of hitting them. Sadly, we give in to these temptations. They're not effective, they're sinful, and they can be extremely damaging to your kids. Unfortunately, child abuse is rampant in our world. And as Christians, we can do even worse by saying that God has given us the right to treat our kids badly and crush their souls. Instead, listen to these levels. Discipline should usually start by setting an expectation for our kids ahead of time. Whether that's 15 minutes before playtime's over or maybe as they're growing to let them know there's a new responsibility or a chore that they're now responsible for. Nobody likes to be surprised by demands from anyone, even if they are the authority. Look at your own life. So once your kids know what's expected, remind them with a respectful request. Remember, we are God's authority for our children, and they, we should be obeyed. That is God's commandment with a promise, remember, last week? If they do not obey us after our request, it is still not time to jump to punishment. But our discipline should escalate to direct instruction or correction. We should quietly take the child aside and tell them that they're clearly disobeying our request. They need to change their behavior or attitude right now. Finally, if they respond by ignoring us or with rude defiance, it is time to administer appropriate punishment. But remember this. 
Children are sensitively aware of fairness and consistency. They know when parents have overreacted or have been too harsh with them. Now, in your own lives with your kids and in mine, there are infinite creative variations that our kids will use to test us on our discipline. And I hope you can share those during your various book discussions. I know that was one of my favorite, most encouraging parts of being in a parenting group. But you should be able to find where in these different levels you and your child are and find the loving way to discipline for your child, for their good, not with an attitude against them by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the examples that Everyday Talk gives, uh, just to, to put some, I think this example helps so much, of an eight-year-old boy being asked to take out the garbage, okay? It might look different. We can all think of similar situations, but I think it's super helpful. Little boy's name is Joshua, okay? Joshua, if you want to be helpful, you could take out the garbage sometime when you have some free time. Now, it sounds nice, but it's not instruction, and it's not specific. Joshua can do that whenever he thinks he has free time, which allows him to decide that he won't have any free time for a few hours or a few days, which then will lead to, Josh, take out the garbage right now. A sharp command will just stir up anger, will not promote understanding or obedience, just grudging compliance. Such a big difference. Often we're, we're okay with grudging compliance. We really want an obedient heart. A harsh word will not help that. Joshua, I asked you yesterday and the day before and the day before that, would you please find time to take out the garbage? The parent is actually the one to blame here because she has not seen to it that she was obeyed the first time. Joshua, please think of things to do to help out, like maybe take out the garbage, okay? Well, this is a formula for producing a whining spirit in your children. This parent is whining to their child. Here's another one. Mommy's so tired of taking out the garbage all the time. Josh, wouldn't you like to help me? Again, this is mommy's problem. This form of manipulation is trying to get Joshua to have sympathy for mom. Joshua, I'm not going to ask you again. Take out the garbage. Now, both the parent and Joshua know she will ask again. Joshua, if you don't take out the garbage this instant, you're going to get the biggest spanking of your life when your father comes home. Do any of those sound familiar to you? I know which ones Michelle and I struggle with. But Yount concludes this. Remember that the goal of your instruction is not only to have the trash taken out, but also primarily to teach your children the joy of obeying God. Therefore, you will use pleasant words to promote your instruction. Here's the request from a parent who expects Joshua to take out the garbage. Joshua, take out, take out the garbage now, please. Sure, mom, no problem. Here, Joshua's mom expects to be obeyed. She doesn't ask Joshua a question. She gives him clear, pleasant direction. Joshua has been trained to understand that obeying mom is doing exactly what he's told right away with a good attitude. Joshua's response is not the one that came naturally to him. He's not just a good kid. He had to be taught. And it can take a lifetime 
to teach these lessons. All right, question number three, the last question we have time for today. Is this the right time and place for this discipline? I cannot say this importantly enough that first and foremost, remember that negative communication should be first shared privately. In most situations, you should take your child out of the presence of friends, of visitors, of others, even siblings, when a rebuke or a spanking is needed. But here's another example of time and place. Do you remember being not super careful as a kid? You didn't look where you were going, you are going too fast, and you crashed on your bike or running or on your skateboard maybe, and you got a huge skinned elbow or knee, you're bleeding, you come running into the house, crying. Tragically, many of us, especially dads, do not restrain ourselves, and we begin to lecture them about what they should have done. Now note this, every word and even the tone you use could be perfect, but it's the wrong time. That is not what your child needs from you in that moment. Praise God. He always holds us first. He always holds us first when we've failed. But we come running to him with our pain. I want to close with one final quote from Gospel-Powered Parenting to give us all the hope we need as we return to our parenting. We are sinners. We fail. This book, or in our case this morning, this sermon, has presented us with a list of shoulds and should nots. None of us do them all consistently. And then when we do, we overdo it. For example, Bill could not control his very strong-willed 13-year-old son. He came to me with tremendous guilt. Several times, Bill had lost his temper, had yelled abusively, and had even disciplined too harshly. He knew the importance of his example and felt devastated by his failure to be patient and affectionate. I pointed him to the gospel. It was Bill's solution, his refuge, Jesus had died to atone for his anger. He was clothed in Christ's righteousness. Jesus had freed him from the need to be perfect. I exhorted Bill to ask his son's forgiveness, which he had already done, and walk in the glorious freedom provided by the gospel. Yes, God is holy. Our sin is serious. The cross is the measure of sin's horrors. Yet, here is the miracle. God loves us, and Jesus bore God's wrath in our place. Parents who repeatedly find forgiveness in the gospel can extend that forgiveness to their children. Your children need to watch you continually shedding your guilt and fear at the foot of the cross. Will you please stand and pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for the wisdom that we find in these books, but primarily in your word.
Thank you for this psalm that shows us that we can be a blessed family, that you are for us when we take our time and energy to cast off the fears that so quickly entangle and fill our minds and lives. And we focus on the fear of you, the obedience and the trust and the love, because you are the best and perfect father, parent. We're so thankful that we have forgiveness in you, and I pray for myself. I desperately need your help every day. I know we all do as parents, as grandparents, as anyone dealing with children. Help us to see tremendous value that they have and the special role that we get to play. And please empower us by your Holy Spirit to do it better as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.